0: Welcome to the Unscripted Scripts and Scribes podcast. Uh, These unscripted podcasts, if you've heard the previous couple, um, you'll know that they're a little bit more casual chat than our usual podcast episodes, but as always, uh, hopefully they're still fun, interesting, and informative. Uh, And today on the show, we've got the president and COO of Top Cow and the writer of Think Tank, Tales of Honor, and Wildfire, Matt Hawkins. We welcome you back to the show. Thanks for coming on, Matt.
1: Well, thanks for having me again, Kevin. Always a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Yeah, and actually, you are sort of the Alec Baldwin of the Scripts and Scribes podcast, just for your Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, by, <laughs> that that, I mean, bad? by that, I mean, th- this is your third time on the podcast. You're, so technically, you're officially the record holder. There are a number of people we've had on a couple times, but you're the first third timer, so.
1: Well, I feel very honored. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no, glad to have you. And I know you were just at the uh, New York Comic Con over the weekend, so I'm sure you're probably jet-lagged.
1: Um, <laughs> Yeah, I was only actually there Friday, but it was uh it was a crazy insane show. I was there for uh, a a wedding on Saturday, so I actually kind of dual purposed it for personal slash business.
0: Nice. Nice. It's always good when you can kind of meld those two together. It works out.
1: Yeah, plus you can use the uh company to pay for the, the, phone, the plane ticket, you
0: know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely works. It's definitely a, a benefit, I suppose. Um and last week you were at uh SmashCon, right?
1: Yeah, Smash SmashCon. I, these things all kind of run together. When you say it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was there. The Lin-Wing SmashCon. And then, uh, you know, I think I'm at Kamikaze this next weekend. Oh, um that's right. A lot of times I don't go to the local ones. I don't always go for the entire thing. I'll go for like a block of time um, right. and do it. And uh, usually if I, if I travel somewhere, I'm kind of there for that. And I'll go you know, for however many hours and uh, just stay all day. I mean, there's really – what I've sort of discovered, and I know there are a lot of people talking about how to be successful at cons lately, Mm -hmm. and I've sort of discovered there's really only two ways to do it. There's either go there the whole time, make yourself accessible to everyone, and just be there and chat and be friendly and talk to everyone, and you'll actually probably meet a lot of people um, it's, it's a lot of hard work, and it seems like you're know it seems like you not talking to as many people as you are, but when you sort of calculate it at the end of the day, you, you've met and talked to a lot of people. The other way, which is what I do sort of like I did about uh, New York, is you just sort of hit a miss thing where you say, uh, hey, I'm going to be here Friday from 1 to 3. This is the only time I'll be here. So if you want to talk to me, come see me here now. And you publicize that time fairly heavily. And then usually what happens is like at Friday at uh, the image booth, um, I had a a pretty big line. I was pretty happy with it. And, uh, you know, I was busy the whole time I was there. And when I left, I actually had to leave. But they actually told me to come back and do another signing later. And I couldn't do it. So it was actually kind of a good feeling, you know. So a lot of times when you do those two or three day shows, you'll stand there sometimes for upwards of an hour. It's pretty tough. You know, and, and I think it feels kind of like, oh, wow, well, I'm wasting my time or, you know, this sort of thing. And believe me, I, I, I've felt that too. Right. Um, but I, I sort of, at the end of, the end of the con, I do a mental sort of uh, thing. And I'll do a little quick thing. I keep track of how much stuff I sell, obviously, but I also keep track of a little, I have a little notepad that I make a little tick of how many people I actually chat with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, because every time you chat with someone, you never know, because they may not buy something from you from that booth, but if, if you made a positive impression, then they go and they see on an, in, an interview by you on CBR about some new book. Then they might go buy that. They'd probably have a better chance of buying that book than they would have otherwise. You know, and I think there's a cumulative effect of doing those sort of uh, points of contact with people. And that's where I think conventions actually has a bit of a cumulative effect over time. Because I have people coming to me that said, oh, you know, I met you in 1996. And I'm like, what? And uh, <laughs> so it's like we have this chat about, you know, how they met me 15, 18, however many years ago. So, um, you know, it, it, it can be fun, you know, and I don't, I just, I, I've, it's been really something on my mind of like, if people seem to really be bitching about cosplay, you know, I mean, there seems to be this sort of anger about cosplay, which I don't really get, you know, because right. to me, cosplay is just an extension of the fan experience. I mean, you know, we, we talked about this in one of, one of the previous podcasts, I think, about how comics is unique in that it's a medium where people can actually meet the people that are behind it. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, cosplay is an extension of that where they can actually be the characters behind it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an immersive sort of uh, experience. You know, it's it's not like reading a novel or watching a movie, really. Right, right.
0: And uh, it's funny because I think uh, the, the sort of backlash at cosplayers probably comes a lot from the thought that some of them are into cosplay, not into the actual, you know, comics and movies and, and these kinds of things. But I think, you know, a lot of them are, I mean, they're, they they have to be to get this sort of detail in their costumes. To get yeah. sort of no, I, you
1: know, look, I, I have yet to, I, I don't understand the, uh, the territory, the nerd territoriality thing. Right. I mean, cause uh, you know, I was a nerd in the late 70s and early 80s, and it wasn't cool to be a nerd back then. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it was something that you actively aspired not to do. I tried to become an athlete so I could get out of sort of that stereotype. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now it's kind of weird to me that these people are so viscerally fighting people to uh, keep their little click thing going. It, it, it's It's interesting to me because it's almost – it's almost the exact inverse of, of what it used to be because, you know, like they've become the, this little trendy clique that they don't want anyone else being part of. It's kind of like that whole socials and greasers thing and all that shit from those fifties through about the eighties films the griefs and all those about the cliques. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, you know, I think part of it, I think is, uh, it's an industry full of, uh, some man children. <laughs> and I think, uh, a lot of those man children are not happy to have, you know, women, folk and and other things in their, in their little domain. And uh, I, I've I've never quite understood that, but I think there's something to that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm.
1: Now at cons
0: being both, uh, you know, you and Mark being the bosses of top cow, but being, you know, uh, an exec at top cow, obviously you get approached by a lot of talent Um, But also the writer, a a writer of Think Tank and Tales of Honor, which we've already had you on both to talk about both of those projects and your new project, Wildfire. You you get more of a I'm sure you get approached by a lot of fans, too. Um, How do you sort of deal with that sort of separation of getting approached by talent, getting approached by fans? I'm sure some talent are fans and some fans are aspiring talent, that kind of thing.
1: Uh, well, people come up and they just ask me a question or I, I respond to whatever the question is. I don't really treat anyone any differently. I mean, mm-hmm. if someone's comes up to me, um, you know, for me, they're all potential sales, every single one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I know that's uh, look. Like if you, I, I, you know, and I, it's funny you're bringing this up now because mm-hmm. with the new talent hunt hitting this actually Wednesday Yeah. and, uh, I, I just get, I get hit up now because of the talent hunts and so many other things by so many people looking to self publish or do these other things. And, um, I've been really inundated with people asking me to read their thing and give them feedback. And I've done this in a few instances, but I've Mm -hmm. I've actually sort of in my head, actually on the, on the plane, on the way back, I mean, this happened yesterday. I just made a sort of thing to myself that I got to stop reading other people's shit. You know, I mean, it's just because it's so time consuming. And, uh, I, I actually spent some significant amount of time going and reading this guy's project and I gave him some feedback and then he wanted to argue with me about it. Right. And, I, and, and I'm like, what? You know, and then, then now I've, now I've sort of pissed this guy off and I'm just like, well, not only did I just waste my time, but I've actually alienated this guy, you know? So, um, it, it's a weird thing. and I, I, people just sort of dig in, you know, and I, I find myself doing that at times, but I, I take notes you know what I mean? I take notes from people, and I sometimes I, I service notes on projects that I don't agree with the notes. But uh, you got to take a look at who's, who's in charge. You know, if somebody's paying right. you to do a gig, you do what they want. If you're doing a self-published thing like Think Tank, I could do what I want.
0: Right. There's, no, a, there's but, an old article. I, I think it's a New Yorker article, but I could be mistaken. It was by the writer of A History of Violence, um, and it's called uh, I will, Why I Will Not Read Your Fucking Script. I don't know if you've ever read it, but basically he says that the, the, the day he stopped reading people's scripts were when I guess at a party, he was approached by the girlfriend of a writer. And I guess they had some sort of loose connection, like they'd known each other a little bit. And he wanted, uh, this writer to take a look at his script and give him feedback. So he did. And, um, basically he sort of, Wrote the, Read the whole thing and needed a lot of work. He wrote pages of notes, spent, you know, a long time, hours putting this together. And he gave the feedback back to the guy. And the guy was like, okay, thanks. And he thought, well, that's kind of odd. You know, he didn't really, he didn't seem appreciative or anything. And then later on, I guess at a different party or something, uh, the mutual friend, the woman said, "I heard you were addicted to this guy." And he's like, "What are you talking about?" She's like, "Yeah, I heard you totally reamed his his script." And he's like, "Well, I gave him constructive feedback." But apparently, you know, his and this is, I find this, this is true in many cases, he he came to the conclusion that the guy didn't want feedback. He wanted praise, he wanted approval. He wanted to use this guy's connections. He didn't want feedback because he had already decided that his script was the greatest thing ever. And so Yeah, I've
1: I've had to, yeah, that that is exactly what is happening. And I feel bad, honestly, at this point for the people who are genuinely looking for feedback sure. because I think there's so so many of the people in that, that category of the guy you're just talking about from mm. that example you just used. Yeah. That it's actually making a guy like me who is sort of open to reading other people's stuff and giving some constructive feedback now I don't want to do it because yeah. um you know, I've spent some time doing it and it's just become such a pain in the ass. And uh, just kind of drives me nuts um and uh I, I don't know i might change my mind but at this point i'm, I'm going to sort of ease ease off on that and i you know the very first talent i agreed to give people feedback and i remember that i thought you were crazy yeah it, it actually drove me absolutely nuts and <laughs> uh here's what i will do i'm going to continue to take pitches for people i will continue to take the pitches and, and stuff like that and if it's someone i i get to know over a period of time and i feel like they have the uh right attitude towards it. I might engage them on some level but at this point people send me stuff blindly through the email or whatever it is there's no feedback I mean I'll take a quick look at it I mean the truth is and I, I you know I, I remember we talked about this too is whenever I read a third party proposal from someone I don't know mm-hmm. I'm looking for any reason to stop reading it right that's actually cuz so many of them are so bad you know what I mean mm-hmm. I mean they're usually so bad that when you, and that's why I like bad art because it's very, you know, I look at bad art and in five seconds I can stop looking at it. Right. It takes longer to look at, to find and uncover somebody's bad, uh, you know, script. And so, you know, when I start reading through it, that's why things like, you know, punctuation and grammar and, and things like that uh, matter, you know. And, 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 and I gotta tell you, it's a weird thing. When I read somebody's script, like, you can tell when someone's sitting there with a, a thesaurus trying to use a bunch of big words. <laughs> right. That's, that's always really weird to me, too, you know, because I, I, when, I, when I have to look up, I'm, I'm a very, fairly well educated verse guy. When I have to look up like 10 words in three pages, I, I'm like sitting there like, some of these, you know, these people that sort of like, it's those people who like from South Park that want to sniff their own farts, you know, that think they're a super poet man and uh, they're going to write the greatest thing ever. And um, that's what I got to tell you, I know we're all over the place with this, but I discovered recently that I don't have the soul and heart of a poet. And it actually kind of hurt. And I realized, because I tried so hard to sort of force that, and then I finally, in the last few months, have just kind of identified that there are certain artists and writers that you meet and you read, that they have this sort of soul of a poet. Mm -hmm. And Neil Gaiman is one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I went back and reread all the Sandmans, and I've been rereading a lot of the early work of people that I really, really, uh, you know, like, personally Mm -hmm. like. And I'm like, well, why did I like this, you know? go back reread it and I look at this stuff and it it's interesting I mean I think there's sort of that where you have these natural naturally gifted sort of uh bards you know like the souls souls of poets that that they write these things it sort of flows in this magical beautiful way and I envy those motherfuckers something fierce you know (laughs) because uh I, I just, it's, the, the scripts are beautiful, you know? And they, cause I, I sometimes hard with those things like similes and metaphors and stuff like that. For me, the stuff doesn't flow as, as, as you know, as much, and I have to sort of uh, play with it, which is why I rewrite as much as I do, you know? Right. But, but I you know, I think most people are in, in the non-poet soul category, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean, but that's what makes them stand out, and there's all types of... Of writing and writers and material just not everything can be sandman i mean there's there's a wide range of of different books and comics and and genres and niches and and this and i think that's what makes it so amazing because you know think tank is very different than sandman obviously but it's 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 really fantastic in its own right but it's again it's a different format it's it's for different on different audience although you know they can be fans of both but you know obviously you know think tank is is very analytical and some people would look at that and go you know the research required to do something like this is just not something that i've been interested in doing it's not something that i want to do and again so it's it's a totally different you know i think viewpoint but it's it's still something i think that uh you know
1: is well is... i guess yeah no go ahead i think the, the good news for people that uh like like me and like everyone else is that you can still be a writer oh sure you don't have the soul of a writer because i well, never really considered myself a writer and even and t- it's only been in the last year where when people ask me what I do for a living,
2: mm-hmm. I say I
1: write. I've always in the past said, oh, you know, I've develop intellectual properties and work publishing company and put out books that we turn into films and TV shows, hopefully. And, right. And and in the last year, people ask me what I do, and I say, oh, I write comic books. Right. And they kind of look at me funny, and then they they either look at me funny and that ends the conversation, or they look at me funny and they're fascinated, want to know all about it. Right. And, uh, it, it, it's either or, um, and it's just it's, it's just an easier thing to do, and you know, cause uh, I you know, I've written video games, I've written animation, I've written TV, and I've written I've worked out some screenplays, but uh, I'm, I'm I'm a comic book writer. I'm writing 60 to 80 pages of comic books a month, mm-hmm. and selling them professionally. So that's what I am. So I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, that's all, and running you know the day to day operations of Top Cow, and I got gotcha. you. Um, yeah,
1: no, no, it's it's all it's all. It's all, it's all in there. But I, I, I just look at what I'm spending the majority and the bulk of my time doing. What do I like doing? You know, mm-hmm. like when I do accounting and tax work, I just, I do it as quickly as I can just get it done. You know, right. I, don't, I don't do it. I don't do it to where it's, you know, I'm hacking it out cause I don't, I don't want to be audited, but uh, <laughs> I, I do that stuff as quickly as I can. And you know, it, it sometimes it bites me in the ass, but I, I actually spend a lot more time researching and writing. Like today I was kind of tired coming back from New York and I'm working on this project tithe with uh, the tithe. And so I laid in bed for about four hours earlier. Was on my iPad reading all these things about megachurches and tithing and, and all these sort of things. So that's a heist story about uh, this group sort of robs mega, megachurches and uh, kind of like the town, but imagine it's, uh, churches that robbing. Right. And, uh, so I started doing all this research, which was just, it's just funny how fast time can fly when you do that. Cause, uh, you know, like I said, it was 9 or 10 o'clock this morning. My, my girlfriend took off to go to work and then I'm sitting there and I look over and it's, it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon I'm still laying there looking on my... I read my iPad at 8% now and I'm like, oh, oh, shit, I guess I should get out of bed. So, <laughs> kind of um, is what it is.
0: Yeah, well, that's one thing that I think that you do uh, do exceptionally well in terms of, again, with Think Tank and, and that kind of thing is, is research. Uh, I was talking to uh, Cliff Dorfman, who used uh, to write entourage and he wrote the new Chrome reboot and wrote Warrior. And he was talking about he was hired to write some screenplay for Special Forces. And he got embedded with a unit and all this and that. And all the little details, like uh, he said that uh, the Special Forces were actually told not to hold their knife a certain way in, in, in public. In terms of like when they were sent uh, overseas to train certain units and this and that because it gave them away as special forces units the way they hold their knife and things because they hold it I guess a a different way with the blade towards you sort of backwards so you can kind of slash someone's throat as opposed to holding it you know pointed upwards. Um, And he said that, that that kind of blew their cover as special forces units or something like that so it's all those little details that you can't really necessarily make up but that really sort of add that depth and realism to your
1: story. Yeah, I, I, that, that's so much fun. I, I mean, I, that would scare me to be embedded with some uh, operations on, on a Ford military operation. I've never done that. I've never tried to do that. But I've been on cop ride-alongs, which are yeah. so much fun. And the first one I ever went along was with LAPD a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was pretty boring, actually. I mean, it was a four-hour thing. And, and, and the craziest thing that I can recall remembering was this uh, pregnant woman spit on the cop car. And, uh, the cops, I'm sure the cops they're giving, you know, reporters or embedded people with are super restrained and not the people that get out and beat shit out of people. But, uh, they got out and talked to this woman and, uh, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty interesting how calm these people were in the face of people in their face all the time. Right. And that, uh, that I actually, you know, I was shocked because you always read, you know, you read about these cops that lose their shit and, and beat people up or whatever it is, but, I saw these guys for four hours that got out of their car half a dozen times and talked to people that were yelling in their face, you know, and uh, they didn't know these people didn't just, just because they were cops. And it sort of gives you both sides of the perspective, you know, because you see something like this Ferguson thing and you realize, okay, that's, just, that's completely out of line, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I saw something in the news today about this, uh, this woman, this Islamic woman in Australia who got pulled over by a cop um, and she didn't know that the dashboard cam of the police car was recording the entire thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and she proceeded to just berate this cop. And then after he gave her a ticket, she went and filed a, uh, like a racial harassment thing, like all made this false police report about all these things, like how he had torn off her, her hood and, and, and was really violent with her and no, 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 no. And, uh, so she actually got arrested and sentenced to six months of jail in Australia. Uh, it's in the news today. I just, I just saw it, cause, mm-hmm. uh, and I was just like, wow, because they have these dashboard cams, you know? Right. And I, I just think, you know, for me, I'm wondering how long it's going to be before every cop has these things because they're going to have them on their jackets. They're going to have them on their cars because I saw another one where they were reporting about these sort of these cameras on these cops, and one cop uh, went in to um, basically serve a warrant and found this, this guy, basically his black neighborhood, found this guy beating the shit out of this woman. So they dragged the guy off and put him in cuffs and were taking him outside, and, and the crowd started getting in his face. And then immediately what one of the cops did is they pulled up the camera to this crowd. It's, not no, you understand this is what happened. And I, I, don't know if that's, I don't know how that affects the legality of things. I don't know how that works. But they immediately all calmed down. I mean, it was so bizarre. I, I was watching this video clip. I, I don't remember exactly where it was. I think it was in Chicago. And uh, you had this, this group of people who were about to, you know, were yelling at these cops and 20 seconds later, they were, ah, fuck you, man. You shouldn't be beating on a woman like that. I mean, same, same guy. <laughs> fuck you, cop, you pig, you know, no, 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 no. And then, right, then right. 20 seconds later, he's like, ah, fuck you for beating on that woman. And I just was like, wow. So, you know, and I know this is just way off topic, but I just, <laughs> I, things like that, I'm just, you know, 100% disclosure is, is great. I think for a situation with cops, because you're talking about a public servant. You know, I know many of the cops, sort of unions, are opposed to this. But think about that; it's going to ferret out the bad people, and it's going to protect the good people. You know, and mm-hmm. if, if people if people are worried about, uh, yeah, you know, like I know some people are worried about constantly being followed, like cameras in the bathroom or, or, or whatever. But I'm, I'm sure there's ways of getting around things like that, to it's right. not a big issue. Right, right. And see so, yeah, as a as a guy writes a story, I immediately think like, oh, for the bad cops, you know what they do is they could turn their cameras off in the bathrooms legally, so they start taking meetings in the bathrooms. Right. You know, so I started thinking about story elements of how, because, you know, bad people are always going to be bad. You know? sure. They're always going to figure out ways to make shit work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think we started this by talking about research. And, uh, <laughs> right along. The, well, the thing about, here's the thing about research, and, and for any, any writer, I think research adds a level and a depth to something. And I can always tell when I read a first-time writer that I'm reading this guy for the first time or a woman, whoever it might be, I could tell if they know the field they're talking about mm-hmm. because uh, it, it's usually pretty obvious, especially when it's something I know a little bit about, but even when I don't, like uh, it, it, I've never found someone that's faked it well enough that knew a lot of inside details about something wh- when they didn't do the research. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's, there's all kinds of little things that cops do or fire. You know, every, every, every job has weird little things that are involved in it that most people wouldn't even think about. You know what I mean? Right. Like uh, if, you're, if you're a banker, you know, if you're in the finance industry, everyone in the finance industry knows what a skip trace is, okay? Mm-hmm. If you're not in the finance industry, you don't know what a skip trace is. Do you know what a skip trace is?
0: No, I'm not in the finance skip, industry. I, I used to work in a
1: bank. A skip trace is basically where people go through people's credit reports to find – if you're trying to track someone down to get them to pay a debt, mm-hmm. um, you, can, you can go through their credit report, find an active account, call that account holder, and they will give you the information on how to track that person down. It's sort of this unspoken thing that people in the finance industry do where they will share information about mm-hmm. how to trace people down. It's called a skip trace. Oh. And they won't always do it, and some companies have a uh, policy against it. But when I was doing banking in the early 90s before I got into comics, um, I used to have a Rolodex you know, of uh, people at different companies that uh, we knew that were sort of our people at this company. We would call this guy at Bank of America if we were trying to track down a BVA account. You know, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So every, every every job has its weird little things like that that make it interesting. And you like, that's, you know, on one end probably learning about that, it probably bothers you on some level. But it's interesting on some level. Those are the kind of interesting details that I think when you can add to a character or a storyline or figure something out that most people don't know about. And I like, you know, when people... I love it when people come to me at times to say, uh, hey, you know, I didn't know anything about this, but I read your comic, and then I, I said, oh, shit, this is true. And then I went back and did my research on it. Um, so I really, really, you know, I really enjoy those and those conversations. And now I have this, from doing things like I have this legion of people out there that are into science stuff now and are sending me links of shit all the time. I don't even need to do my own research because people keep sending me all these links to look at that's sort of uh-huh. relevant to the military industrial complex. And I spend more time doing reading that stuff than I do with the old research material I did. Right. That's cool. Yeah. Um, No, it's it's fun. It's good stuff.
0: Now, I guess we can't breeze over the talent hunt because that's obviously something that's of interest to a great many of our listeners. Um, So what's new about this year's talent hunt? I know last year's talent hunt, you would, supposed to hire three writers, three artists or something, but you expanded to like 10 or something. And so Actually, we
1: ran it to four, 14. There was 14 writers and 14 oh, artists. Oh, goodness gracious. We did four, four, four winners and 10 runner-ups, which uh, in hindsight was kind of silly. Uh, I mean, good for the people that won and they got the exposure, but it became uh, hard for us to do. It was too big. Um, in fact, I've really scaled it back this year, and I'm sure people may not like to hear this, but we're doing two winners, two runners-ups. That's it. That's uh because, I mean, part of the problem is we still haven't published half of last year's runner-up winners, mm-hmm. and we're still trying to figure out where to slot them in and what to do. And, you know, we're we're sort of a small company. You know, I mean, we're not giant, and uh, we sort of slot some of the stuff in around what we regularly do. So, um, we're doing it this year. It starts in October. starts October 15th, which I believe is Wednesday after when this airs. But, um, it's, uh, it's so by the time this airs, it's probably... Uh, the talent hunt will already be running. We're we're announcing the rules and everything through compupresources. dot com. I'm sure they'll be on the topcow. dot com site. I know they will. But there's uh, part of the thing too is we got our site was, is not really designed to take massive amounts of traffic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just basically a marketing site, and I, I'm not at this point willing to spend money to upgrade it. Um, so I made a deal with cbr.com dot com to basically host the talent hunt because they are built to take massive traffic. Um, and so there's going to be a forum on their uh, like their message boards mm-hmm. that people can go in and, and, and download all the information from for about basically the sample scripts for the artists, the rules and the submission form for the writers. Um, and you can talk to other participants in that forum. And there's also going to be myself and Betsy and Ryan who will go in there and interact with people on that forum if they have questions. It'll primarily be Ryan who will probably go in there every day I'll probably go in there once a week or whenever he asks me to says, Hey, can you go answer this question? And I'll go in and answer it. Um, but, uh, we're letting, we're running it a little longer this time. You know, I I had several people last year, especially the artists, because you're running it over the holidays. They had difficulties figuring out, finding the time to do it. I mean, basically we're asking people to do eight pages of sequential art for artists, uh, in five months. You know, that's, that's a little over a page. Um, the, the contest runs through March 15th. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we're hoping, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the second year we, you know, it, it, the other interesting thing was, uh, you know, the first year we had, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but I know we had slightly more entrants the first year than the second year.
2: Oh, okay. um,
1: and so I don't know if that's because people tried it and they lost, they figured they're not going to re-enter. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure what it was. it was. It was slightly less. It wasn't like, you know, half, but it was, I would guess 10% less, if I remember correctly.
0: How many um, entrants approximately did you have either the first or the second year?
1: Uh, I think there were 1,100 rider submissions okay. the first year, and I don't remember how many art submissions. So I would I would guess 14 to 1,600. Um, okay. Those numbers seem ring a bell to me. I, I don't hold me to them. I'd have to go back and look.
2: Right. And right. I
1: know there were few, There were fewer in the second year, which was also the irony because We had so many more winning spaces.
2: Sure. You know.
1: So, sure. um, but uh, and we've opened it up this year. Basically, uh, you know, the first year it was. Uh, a very specific story we are looking for. The second year we did it as sort of the Tales of sort of Artifact Bearer stories. This this year, uh, I'm opening it up quite a bit. Not only is it including Aphrodite-9 and Cyberforce, those characters in those universes, which are in the Top Gear universe, but also everything in the Artifact universe, past, present, or future. So it really is opening it up quite a bit. So anyone that's done the research over the last couple of years, has a special affinity for a certain character, can just write a story about that character. Um and, uh, you know, if you like the newer stuff, I, one of the things I had people bitching about last year was there's just so much material. I think people that were unfamiliar with sort of the Top Cow brand of characters didn't realize there were 14 or 1,500 books they could read. Right. You know, they, then they started reading it and realized, oh, this is, I, I could spend thousands of dollars here. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I initially wanted to make it Cyber Force in After 99 because the nice thing about Cyberforce Force After 99 is the first five issues of Cyberforce Force are still free online because of the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. The first issue of Aphrodite Nine was free because of the Free Comic Book Day, and so if you wanted, to, if you were going to do an Aphrodite Nine slash Cyberforce story, you'd really only have to buy two trades: the second Aphrodite trade and the second uh, Cyberforce trade.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, low low cost of entry.
0: In terms of the talent hunt itself, uh, who actually judges it? Is it like you and a couple other people, like you had mentioned Ryan and somebody else, or is it? Just you and Mark, or who actually makes that final decision of who the two winners and the two finalists are?
1: Well, the, the decision on the finalists are for writers is me, for artists is Sylvester. Okay. And uh, what we have is I've, you know, several events, Ryan, Betsy, we've got several people. Well, these things come in, and even I read some of the first ones. And we sort of narrow it down to 30 or 40 or 50 or however many we feel like um, are good. And, 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 and particularly with the writers, the nice thing. Is the way we're doing it this year and last year is that we're asking people to turn in finished scripts. So the book is basically, and, and the way we're judging them is, is this basically ready to go to press? You mm-hmm. know, what I mean, can we hand this to an artist and just have them draw it? Right. And I think of the four winners. I mean, most of those books have come out already from last year, or they've been they've been drawn. Um, I don't think we made a lot of editorial commentary on them. I mean, because the point of it was we wanted to pick people who wrote a one-shot stories that were basically ready to go. Right. There may have been a little bit of editorial to them, but I, I don't think there was a lot. And uh, we sort of, you know, picked winners based on that. So going through and reading, you know, scripts and making sure they're ready, uh, basically to hand off to an artist, uh, allows a lot of, uh, you know, you know, just putting people in the no pile because a lot of people don't communicate what they want. I think the biggest thing people either have one or, they either have one of, of two problems or they suck in general. And uh, if they're just bad overall, that's easy. Mm-hmm. But some people write very descriptive plots and they're really, really good, but their dialogue is not very good. And then there's people who write really nice dialogue, but their descriptions of what the panels should be like are not very good. And uh, so, you know, we, what we're looking for, so, just, just we're looking for so few, is um, we're looking for someone who does all of it and does it well. And I think that's ultimately what it takes to win this contest is to basically be a person who could write comics professionally now and their voice just hasn't been heard. I mean, this, is, this isn't really an education. It's not a workshop. It's not a tutorial. And uh, uh, barring that first year where I agreed to give feedback, I was just simply not going to offer it anymore.
0: Right, right. That's understandable. We're,
1: we're over- creating an opportunity. You know, we're not teaching a school.
0: Right, right. No, and we've mentioned it before the past couple years, is that it's such a great opportunity for comic book writers who have such a uh, limited uh, Uh, Opportunity window to sort of break into the industry if you want to write for comics It's not not that it's easy being a screenwriter, but there's so many more outlets and so many more people willing to read your material Uh than comics who basically nobody wants to read your material at all I mean even people in the industry especially people in the comic book industry. They don't want to read your material They don't they have too many other things to do so that uh, this is really just a huge huge opportunity for, for aspiring comic writers that if you're a comic writer and you're not taking advantage of it uh it's it's kind of crazy in all honesty
1: yeah i i agree you know and uh one thing that we've noted and i caught it a couple times last year was anyone submitting the same script uh oh. we catch it. yeah 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 you know i mean i think people don't think we're going to catch that but we did there were yeah. two of them i caught last year i'm like i already read this and uh so we're, we're sort of creating an archive. The thing is, that if, you, if you submitted something and you lost, the chances of you submitting it again and possibly winning are, are slim anyway. Right. Uh, so I don't, know, I don't know why people waste time doing stuff like that. Right. But, uh,
0: and, for um, any, no, and for anyone who hasn't submitted to the talent hunt but wants to write for comics, uh, it, just as a side note, it doesn't cost anything. This is not like a a, a contest or a, a festival or anything like that where you have to pay money. Even the Nickel Fellowship, which is great, and they pay you to write a, a feature if you get selected, they charge. I mean, I can't remember what the fee was this year, but, I mean, there's no fee for the talent, which is amazing.
1: No, there's no fee, and also the people that wouldn't get paid. Yeah. You know, if you talk to any of the talent winners uh, the last couple of years, they were paid for their work, you know. I mean, not like A-list pay and page rates, but they were paid.
2: Right. No. Absolutely. You know,
1: I, I've I've been shocked at how so how little some writers and comics are getting paid today. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to uh, you know I've, I've been working with some new people off and on over the last couple of years, talking to some of these guys about what they're getting paid from some of the more independent companies. I, I'm actually shocked because uh, I wouldn't do it for that. You know, right. I mean, some guys getting paid twenty to forty dollars a page. Wow. You know, so you figure. I guess it depends on how fast you are. So. Mm-hmm. If you pay me 800 I guess well I guess, I guess it really depends on how fast you are, because that's what. If you paid 20 bucks a page, there's 20 bucks, that's 400 bucks. I guess you could write it in two, three days. for some people that' would be worthwhile, but it takes me a lot longer than that to write books. you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I don't
1: know because uh, you know when I first got into comics, 125 to 175 was a, a good, writer page rate. Mm-hmm. And I, I still know that 125 is sort of the high end. It seems like for most people, unless you're in that upper category at Marvel or DC or, or you're selling walking dead, you know, most people aren't making more than 125 a page for writing comics these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and by, you know, I'm somebody I, I've been offered a few, few gigs since my profiles been raised. And I, I, a couple of them I've taken, a couple of them I've turned down. But A lot of it's been based on what they pay, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've had, People come in and say, oh, we really going to work with you, Matt. I'll really love your book. Uh, we could pay you our top rate 60 bucks a page. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think I ain't going to do that. You know, right. I just don't uh, – because I can, I can go write an, an issue of Think Tank and make more than that, And I would rather write an issue of Think Tank. And for me, doing work for hire work is, is not worth it because I'm able to do creator own work and own the stuff and be able to exploit the rights and the licensing opportunities over the longer haul right. than going and doing work for hire stuff, you know?
0: Yeah, no, Absolutely then speaking of your writing work and we've talked about think tank before we've talked about tales of honor uh let's talk about your new book wildfire tell me a little bit about it
1: uh wildfire is a gmo controversy disaster story epic uh, oh my goodness two, it's coming out in two weeks and that actually closes the first arc i mean it's uh in, in regards to um, you talking about research, I, I didn't know anything about GMO food or GMO anything. and I, I was curious and I wanted to find out more, so I, I sort of developed uh, an idea for a storyline about accelerated plant growth that would create that uh, people were using to grow crops faster so that they could feed the world better. And, uh, and, it, and then I started doing a lot of the research and, I, and found out that these things already exist. Um, and the concerns about them are being released into the environment. and How all these sort of things happen. And I sort of, I sort of started it as a sort of pro sort of science, pro GMO guy, and sort of ended it after doing the research and the story of being more on the side of this shit needs to be tested.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, not like anti or, or crazy activists or anything like that. But uh, you know, there's I spent some time with some botanists and some uh, biologists and. and You know, my favorite thing to do to scientists is ask them what scares them.
2: Right.
1: Because uh, you ask a scientist, especially someone who's got a very specialized field, you ask them what scares them. They have very specific ideas of what scares them. And, um, you know, part of the thing with the wildfires, I always hear about, you know, these fires they have in the mountains, up in the valleys, and various places. You never see the fires in the west side of L.A. So I wanted to destroy west L.A. (laughs) And uh, so basically we had this group, you know, this think tank group, uh, working on this accelerated plant growth, growth out of USC. Uh, they're about to lose their funding. Um, they decide to, they, they they can't get it to work, but they need to test it. They need to do some sort of press to get some positive PR on it so they can continue their funding. So they do a test uh, and, and sort of this p- public relations thing with a dandelion. And, the dan- and and an activist actually comes and interrupts and breaks the thing and gets some of the dandelion seeds on his jacket. And when he's called off by security, oh, uh, kind of the end of Forrest Gump, couple of, you see a couple of these dandelion seeds roll with the wind off of his jacket and then the very next morning the entire west side is covered by dandelions mm. and then uh from there it starts jumping to other species of plants uh, you know once like i said once i started doing the research i'm like oh really i didn't know that dandelions and weeds and all these other sort of things were sexually compatible and it sort of explains why you see weeds so often is these oh. things are they're sexually compatible you know mm. so it's, it's it's like, uh, and so that's fascinating to me. So imagine just the entire west side being covered with weeds, and they're trying to clean it up, and then uh, what's the logical sort of next step of that is, is a fire. So a fire comes through and wipes it out, and it's sort of ultimately, and I, I know you'd be giving away too much of the plot, but there's a lot more to it. The fire actually causes the, uh, the mutation that's been released in the wild to mutate even further and causes it to jump to higher plant species so that trees and the larger sort of uh, varieties are starting to grow out of control as well so then you're having freeways and buildings collapse because giant trees are growing underneath their uh, infrastructures mm-hmm. so it's, a, it's it's basically a disaster epic and it's all caused by the release of a single dandelion seed.
0: nice um no but I, uh, I, no i was gonna say i love that kind of stuff science-based research stuff um i think that's why i responded to think tank and stuff like that because I, I dig that stuff so that sounds cool. Well, I've
1: been telling people, I I'm, I seem to be writing a couple different types of stories. Uh, you know, there's Think Tank and Wildfire, which to me are kind of the same universe. Mm. It, that sort of science. It's a uh, high, hard science kind of stuff. And then there's Aphrodite Nine and Tales of Honor, which is sort of this uh, sort of science fiction kind of stuff. And right. that's really, you're looking at the two types of things I actually like to write. You know, so those are probably what I'm going to stick with, you know. And uh, I might try some other stuff at some point, but I'm going to stick with, what I like to do and what I'm good at. And uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm doing a lot more stuff like that. Like I'm doing a new Tales of Monarchs arc. Uh, we're doing a second season of Wildfire. Um, doing the fourth season of Think Tank. At mm-hmm. the fourth volume. Um, I'm doing the Ties with Versan. So yeah, a lot, a lot of stuff on the works. It's. I looked at my schedule and my uh, writing schedule is book solid for the next 19 months.
0: Oh goodness. Um, that's great though. I mean, it's always good to be busy and to have, have things to do.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm having I'm having fun still. I it, there's some like you said the work for hire gigs aren't quite as fun and uh, they're not quite as rewarding, but uh they sure pay better sometimes.
0: Right. Um well and that I guess transition to uh the question we'd like to ask everybody is reading, watching and playing in terms of video games, what are you reading, watching and or playing these days?
1: I just finished reading Childhood's End. Um, the Arthur C. Clarke book, I've read it about a hundred times, but I read it again just very recently. Um, I forgot how that ended, and it's interesting to remind me of that. That's the book I just read. I've been reading uh, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov. Um, I, I, I've had this rash of reading of the classic sci-fi stuff in the last about six months. So any, any spare time I've had, I've, I've basically read that. I'm mm-hmm. um, also reading... What was this book called? I'm reading. I I read a lot of the tales of honor, the Honor Harrington stuff. That's work related, and you know, I I get a lot of these uh, books, science books, and stuff sent to me. And I'm reading two or three of those right now. And I always love like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and I just finished *The God Delusion*. We read that. I'd read that a couple times before, so those things are always fun for me. Uh, What am I watching? I'm watching *The Blacklist*. Uh,
2: Okay.
1: I like I like the Nick. I, I like the I, I like the Steve Wilkos show, uh, and I know that's a weird one, but that's because of my girlfriend. And uh, <laughs> that that I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Is that the guy? Isn't that
0: the more... guy from Jerry Springer, the bouncer guy from Jerry Springer? Yes. Has... Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, but it, it it is it is the most. You know what? Go watch one of the shows where it's the child abuse show because uh, they have basically a couple parents or a parent, a grandparent and they know that someone is abusing this child, and uh, they go on. It's just, it's just, I don't know if it's just the way they write it, but it's highly emotional. By the end of these shows, I'm like emotionally distraught. I'm like wrecked because you see these people basically lying. They're caught on these lie detector tests.
2: And mm-hmm.
1: It is actually quite fascinating. I think you know, some people that are, like to write, they need to uh, dig into the mire a little bit if they want to learn character and not be so highbrow about stuff. Because when you when you stick only to the highbrow stuff, you can't write other stuff. You know, right. going in and listening to characters talk on Jerry Springer and stuff like that can give you an interesting look on how certain classes of people talk. You know, you know, Springer and shows like that are, are these are poor uneducated people, but you need people like that for stories too. Um, and uh, what else am I reading and writing uh, or not or watching? Uh, you know, I, I really fell out of love with movies lately. I'm not sure why that is. I don't think I saw maybe one or two summer movies, and they may have been both the Marvel ones. You know, right, right. I know I saw Guardians of the Galaxy, and I know I think I saw Captain America. Uh, I saw the Tom Cruise, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, but you know, normally, in years past, I watch like, a movie every weekend with my kids and, and my woman and stuff. I didn't do that this year. I just didn't watch hardly anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm not sure why that is. It might be because there's so much good TV. Like I said, I watched The Nick. Have you seen The Nick? That's such a great show.
0: No, but you're not the first person to recommend it to me. I definitely have to check that out
1: great fucking show. Um, and, uh, I think those are the ones off the top of my head that I can remember in the immediate. And what was the third? It was, uh, what am I reading? What am I watching? was the playing. third one?
0: Playing video games.
1: Oh, I played, uh, you know, I got this Destiny game, the new one from the Halo yeah, yeah, yeah. guys. And I, I played that for a little bit, but I just couldn't get into it. I, I, uh, You know, I'm not very good at these sort of games, these shooter games, where eventually the goal was to be a multiplayer and go fight, you know, other little kids with too much time on their hands. Right. Um, And uh, so I play those a little bit sometimes just to see what they're like. But uh, I I suck at them, so I just kind of live vicariously through my sons and watch them go on and talk shit to these other little kids about it. Um, Nice. I I played Titanfall, couldn't get into that. Um, I played the second Intimus game. Uh, Second son, I think I really oh, yeah. like that game a lot. Yeah. Like that game a lot. Highly recommend it. Um, I play Final Fantasy XIV, the MMO one, with my uh, my girlfriend. She plays that, and so I get on there and play that with her. But I mean, I, it sounds like I'm, I'm playing video games a lot. I, I probably play video games maybe three or four hours a week if I'm mm-hmm. lucky. You know, it also depends on if my kids are using all the systems. And I'm, I'm... so since I have my kids every other week, when I have my boys. They are, uh, you know, I don't get to play much. It's only when, uh, like this week, I don't have my kids, so I'll probably play video games a little
0: bit. It's funny, though, because I know a lot of people in the entertainment industry, mostly men, obviously, uh, play play a lot of video games. I mean, it's it's especially nowadays, it's not Pac-Man and Don. I mean, there's real in-depth stories. It's almost like you're playing a movie, you know, like The Last of Us. I played The Last of Us, loved it. Yeah, I know, but I mean, it's, it's like you're almost like you're in a movie, so it, it's really... Uh, sort of a visceral form of entertainment like anything else. It's it's really not that different except you make slight choices here and there and, and you're sort of involved in the action, but really it kind of directs you in a sort of way. So it's really not that different than watching a television show or reading a book, I don't think. So, you know, and yeah, we grew up I mean, with just... video
1: games. The new sort of casual games seem to be the online mobile-type games. And, you know, I play uh, the new Star Wars one that's kind of a rip-off of Quest Clans. I've been playing that for a while. It's kind of fun. But mm-hmm. uh, I try to see how long I can play those dumb games without actually spending any money. The sort of so-called <laughs> free-to-play ones, you know?
0: Right, right, right. Uh,
1: the the sort of uh, the two. I I love those mobile free games because I'll play them for a while until I feel like I need to pay money. And I'll either pay money and then quit or I'll, I'll quit. And usually I quit first.
0: But again, like... Um, buying comics, watching movies, buying video games, I mean, or spending money on that. I mean, if you're paying for entertainment, you know, even paying for cable, is not that much different than paying for, you know, whatever it is. As long as you're you know, getting something out of it, like you really enjoy it, I suppose. It's not that different.
1: Well, see, that's that's part of the reason and part of the problem I see with comics today. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there's so much competition for the dollar. Yeah. And, and the truth is that there are so many things that are just such a better value. You know, I mean, and this is where I argue with people all the time. I'm like, how many comics have you read in in, in the last six months that uh, you read, you know, you spent three or four bucks on, you read in less than two minutes, and you never thought of again?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know,
1: how many? That's two-thirds of the comics you bought. I said, well, why do you keep buying those? You know, to me, it's like I, I, I try hard, and I spend more time trying to write stuff that makes, makes, gives people something to think about. You know what I mean? Like, I, I I try to do stuff that sticks with people. It doesn't always work, and you can't always do that. Sure. But at least, at least I'm trying, and that's why I do the extra stuff with the uh, you know, the, the science classes at the end is, is to give people that are interested in more the ability to find more and give that more immersive experience. I think the problem with comics today for the most part is they're kind of boring. You know, It's the same shit that's been going on for decades, and there's not a lot of new stuff. You know, I'm constantly amazed that Marvel and DC are able to retell the same story as many times as they can you know, Mm -hmm. by different writers, with different artists, but it's just the same stories over and over and over and over and over again. And I guess it works for them because they're, you know, very profitable and they've built these franchises and maybe that's part of their uh, success is they only, they keep retelling the same stories so many times that by the time they're translated into films and TV, people know them. And maybe that familiarity is what works. I I honestly don't know, but it's, it's for me, it's, it's more about the, the characters. Do I like this character? And, you know, essentially, I had a conversation with someone on, on Friday at the booth, um, at the image booth, and we were talking about how we're sort of in this post-plot era, you know, of particularly of movie-making and other things, where no one seems to give a fuck about plot anymore. You know, you can have a really interesting character and have a story that doesn't make any sense, but if they like that sto- character, you know, because I've, I've challenged people to tell me what the plot of Guardians of the Galaxy was. I, I, I've talked to several people that want to argue with me about it. What was the plot of that movie? And they're like, uh, well, uh, because they, the, they remember Groot, they remember Rocket, they remember, you know, right. Star-Lord, they remember these characters, and they remember some of the scenes they were in. But most people don't remember the Infinity Stones, what they were after, who the right. bad guy was or why he mattered, how well his relationship was to Thanos, you know, these things. And, and if you really look at it, the plot is very simple, you know? I mean, basically, this guy takes this thing and these other people want it. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, so they're not very plot-heavy stuff. Right. Uh, which is why I think I think I've drifted to TV of late because it seems to me like that's where all the interesting stuff is happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you can develop a lot more in thirteen hours, yeah. you know, of a season, you know, short season of no cable season, and you can in a two-hour. Yeah, I think,
1: it, yeah. And I think it, it seems to me that the, the better storytellers seem to be drifting to TV now. You yeah. Know?
0: yeah,
1: you know, the Nick is an example. I mean, that's uh, that's Summers, right? Is that summers is doing that. Um, in summers, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he wrote and directed, I think, the first 10 episodes. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know? And Clive, Clive Owen, who makes a great drug addict, you know. When I first saw the, the premise of this, I'm like, oh, this is just House in 19, in 1900. But it's really not. I mean, it's actually uh, way better than that. It makes me realize what, how thin the plots of House were. Um, but, uh, no, I can't recommend The Nick enough. I, I'm totally obsessed with that show. Nice. I'm
0: going to have to check it out.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, in, in terms of what is the next big thing, um, I don't know. I'm hoping, I, you know, I, it probably won't be me inventing it. I, 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 the one thing I've always noticed and we've been good about is, and whether it's distribution outlets or whatever it is, is when doors are open, it's always the people that follow that tend to make more money, not the people that, the forerunners tend to open doors, but in, in every case, you know, you look at Apple and Microsoft initially. I mean, that may not be the case now, but, uh, all these companies come in and and sort of open and pioneer these things, but they spend so much money doing it. And then the people right behind them figure out a better way to do it and go on and make more money.
0: Well, I mean, if you look at um, the GUI, the graphical user interface was designed by these two guys in this garage and um, it was bought by, I think Steve jobs bought it, but, but Bill Gates had seen it and designed his own. And that's how in both, you know, Apple, and Microsoft became obviously billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies. And those two guys just got paid off. And they were the ones yeah. who traded the graphical user interface where it wasn't, you weren't like typing in lines of code, but you actually saw what you were writing. You were, you know, you saw what format it was going to be. It wasn't, it was, you know, again, like you would look at Windows and, and you look at the Mac interface now, that's what it, they created that. But again, they didn't make a mint off of it. They made a little bit, but it got bought up and, you know, by two Obviously, visionary men, but still, um.
1: I think I, I have a prediction that in the next twenty-five years we're going to see sort of Oculus Rift and sort of these things where you have sort of mm-hmm. MMO level video games where you have entertainment all sort of coalesce, right? Where people can sort of jack in. You know, it goes back to uh, what the Neuromancer that Gibson was trying to do. You know, oh, right. people sort of jack jack into this world and uh, there are certain people that like to create these worlds that other people can explore and those include storylines and stuff like that. Have you read a book called uh, Ready to Play? No. Uh, Oh my god dude. You're you're, in your late 30s or 40s. I don't actually don't know how old you are but if you you were a child of the 80s at all Uh this this is a book you will fucking love. Uh, It's called Ready to Play. It's this guy's first game our first novel. And just so you know that this guy is one of our homies, he took his advance for the novel and went and bought one of the Back to the Future DeLoreans. So this is the, this guy <laughs> is, is a true dork like the rest of us. And yeah. uh, it's just, it's an amazing book laced with so many 80s references. It's basically this guy created this sort of Oculus Rift world that it's like this World of Warcraft world that everyone spends all their time in. No one wants to be in the real world because the real world sucks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can go into this, you can jack into this world and create your own persona and be whoever you want.
0: So, so it was a it, real real life, second life.
1: Yes. Yeah. Wow. But on top of second life, what it is, is everything, there were worlds within that world where people would create, like, their own World of Warcraft world, you oh, know, wow. or and also in, in Ready to Play, basically the people that controlled this giant world licensed all these storylines from previously well-known things. So you could go to the Star Wars universe inside of this giant sort of thing and spend your time. You could spend all your time in, in the Star Wars universe, uh-huh. Star Trek and, and – uh, they're making a movie i don't know how they're going to do it because the licensing issue should be pretty nutty but uh it's, it's sort of uh a, it's, it's a pretty cool fucking book I, I i really enjoy it so i recommend that too okay
0: we'll definitely have to check that out uh i don't want to take too much of your time <laughs> but i appreciate you coming on and, and talking about everything i'm going to put links to the cbr talent hunt and uh uh you know the cyber force yeah it should, be up, uh, have...
1: yeah, it should be up should be up uh wednesday
0: yeah by the time this airs it'll be out the previous week, because we're going to be airing uh, on a Monday, so it'll be out the previous Wednesday, but I'll I'll definitely have the links up for it and everything as well as the, I will not read your fucking script article, because I do think that was a brilliantly written um, article, Um, and it sort of explains why people don't necessarily want to read your material, it's not necessarily you per se, but they have a bad, a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth from you know, people who just want they want praise, they want your connections, they don't want a critique, an honest critique. And then, so that is, yeah, they want you to, to hire work. them.
1: You know, they want a job. They don't want feedback. They want a job. And right. They, right. Most people mistakenly assume that they're good enough to, uh, to do something immediately. And, uh, it's, uh, I just, it's not as easy as people think it is. I mean, I, I do still believe that most people can become good writers. I, I believe that, you know, I'm sort of a case in point. I was a science guy who was working in finance. I was about as far away from English and writing as you can get. And, uh, So I do believe it is possible for anyone to do this, but you got to be willing to take a lot of critical feedback and learn. It's not something that's, that's easy. You know, I'm still learning. You know, I look back at my stuff I've written previously and I'm Oh my God, how would you so differently now? You know? So you always evolve as a writer.
0: Plus I think in the article, he went on to say that um, writing is his profession. He gets paid to do it. And that includes, you know, editing and rising his own material. So by coming to him and saying, Hey, can you look at this and give me a critique? It's almost like if you were an accountant saying, hey, can you do my taxes for free? I mean, you're he's you're asking him to basically work for you for nothing just by thinking, oh, just take a look at it. You know let me. But that's not how he looks at it. He looks at it like this is my job. This is what I do for a living. And again, you work at, you know, if you own um, a butcher shop, I don't come in there saying, hey, can I have some free steaks? Well, you have plenty of them. Why can't I have it? It's not a big deal. You know, it's, it doesn't work that way. Is what Right. It, part of his message was as well but um anyway great having you back on um be sure to follow matt on twitter at @topcowmat, matt and uh, like i said we're going to put all the links up there um and uh, check out wildfire um and for more great interviews and resources on writing check out our website scriptinscribes.com and thanks for listening as always